So the other day, the other day I came upon this brilliant little book by a writer named Jonathan Goldstein in which he rewrites some of the stories from the Hebrew Bible. They are quite hilarious and rather touching. This is how he describes the moment when Eve tastes the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Snake slithers up to Eve and says, Hi, in the mood for some fruit of knowledge? It's fruity. Eve says, We were told not to eat from that tree or else we would die. Die? What an ignorant thing to say, said the snake. If there is a trap door in paradise, then it's not really paradise, is it? Eve found arguing semantics exhilarating. <clears throat> then the snake said, think about it. Does God want companions who can think for themselves? Or does he want lackeys and yes-men? Wouldn't God want a few surprises? God's telling you not to eat the fruit was just a test to see if you could think for yourselves, to see if you could exist as equals to God. The day you taste the fruit is the day God will no longer be lonely. At least give it a lick. <laughs> the fruit was squishy and tart. She smushed it around in her mouth. She squinted her eyes. It was like trying on new glasses. It was a bit like an amyl nitrite popper. It was a bit like a big wet kiss on the lips right at first when you weren't sure if you wanted to be kissed or not. She felt a thousand little feet kicking at her uterus. The idea of her own nudity, as well as Adam's, had always felt more like a Nordic co-ed health spa thing. <clears throat> now, with the fruit of knowledge, it felt more like a Rio de Janeiro carnival thing. So this is where our first reading begins this morning. Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit and suddenly they realize they are naked. But in the Bible, they're not thinking about Rio, actually. They are terrified and filled with shame. In fact, it's their shame that gives them away. God comes around the garden looking for them and realizes they're hiding. What's going on? He says, where are you? Adam explains, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you ever noticed how many times in this first desperate attempt at justifying himself, Adam uses the word I? Four times in a single sentence, I heard you walking in the garden, I was afraid, I was naked, I hid myself. I, 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 I. There's no more we. The we in Adam's vocabulary is gone. It's broken. You can tell because the very next thing he does is he betrays his one and only best friend, Eve. It's not my fault, it's the woman. She gave me the fruit. When God said, who told you that, were, that you were naked? He might just as well have said, who told you that you were an I? 
Before the fall, Adam never used the word I. The only words Adam had spoken up to this point had been the names of animals and plants. He wanders around the garden, naming everything he sees. Ooh, there's a moose. There's a platypus. There's a mountain. It's raining. There's a woman. Fantastic. <laughs> it's not just that we became naked. It's that we became individuals. And then the very first thing we did, we betrayed the ones we loved. This marks the beginning of our loneliness, the beginning of our strange, tragic impulse to seek autonomy over covenantal relationship, and by so doing, hurting the ones we love the most. Why is true love so rare? Why is divorce so common? Why are we so lonely? Why is the world so full of people in search of a lover? Well, according to this story, it's not about sex primarily. Sex is just an inadequate substitute for what we're really seeking to recover, which is this deep, intimate relationship. It's about seeing and being seen knowing and being known on the deepest level. Collectively, we have this intuitive sense that we used to have that capacity for love, and then something happened, and now it's gone, and here we are alone in the world. The story isn't so much about explaining how that happened as illustrating that it happened. The story from Genesis is a vivid reminder of what we've lost. For me, it's a reminder of the day my marriage died. I could give you all sorts of reasons why it was that after 30 years in which my wife and I were a, a unit, an undivided whole, being composed of masculine and feminine features, suddenly we woke up one day in separate beds and the marriage had died. It was a death as real as any death I've ever seen, and I've seen a few. During those horrible days of reckoning, the image that kept coming back to me was the image of a baby wrapped in a blanket and thrown over a bridge. I watched that marriage disappear into the void, never to return, irrevocably lost. And I realized that we were no longer husband and wife, we were individuals once again. The marriage had died and suddenly it felt like we were two strangers inhabiting the same house, staring at each other from across the kitchen table, wondering, who is that person? The thing is that as individuals we really had not changed. What changed was our capacity to be mutually vulnerable to one another, to trust one another deeply, to abide in this state of communion, which is marriage. Lately, I've been reading Cynthia Bourgeau's book, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene, in preparation for the book group that we're starting up next week. Cynthia Bourgeau talks about a word that was used in the time of Jesus to describe this deep, soul-to-soul -soul love. The image it evokes is the image of the 
bridal chamber where in the spiritual relationship this deep communion of knowing and being known is realized. The Greek word is koinonos. Mary Magdalene is rather shockingly described in the Gnostic Gospel of Philip as Jesus's koinonos, his companion, quite possibly his lover, his mate, spiritual spouse. The word shares the same root as koinonia, which is used throughout the New Testament to describe the primordial state of communion in the early church, the mystical state of union between God of Christ, God in Christ, and his people. It describes a relationship of deep mutual participation, of soulful interpenetration, a relationship in which there is no separation or alienation or loneliness. It's the word we use to describe the way we are when we're all kneeling at this communion rail together. It's the state of being Jesus described as the wedding banquet. And when it refers to Mary Magdalene and Jesus, according to the Gospel of Philip, it refers to the deep completion of relationship in the bridal chamber. I don't know what to make of all that just yet. And even Cynthia Bourgeau admits that the implication that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were lovers is difficult to accept and very speculative at best. There's a lot of missing evidence, an abundance of textual difficulties. My hunch is that it's more a projection of our longing than an actual historical occurrence. But what we can say with confidence is this, just as we recognize in the story of the fall something precious that's been lost, just so in these stories of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, we recognize the possibility of that first communion being restored. We recognize that we're not meant to be alone in this vast universe. We have this primordial memory buried deep down at the root of our brainstem of that earliest relationship that is still there, still calling us back home, calling us back to our original undivided state as people deeply in love. As history, these stories are problematic, but as memories of what we once had, of what we long for, this side of Eden, they're powerful and evocative. Here the invitation is made to us to reunion, communion, deep restoration of an uncorrupted singularity of love. And that, of course, is why we're here today, right? We are here for koinonia, which coincidentally was the final word in this year's Scripps National Spelling Bee. <laughs> I think it's probably the only time in my lifetime that I could have actually spelled the last word in Scripps National Spelling Bee. We are here because we know deep in our guts that we don't need to be so alone. We know, in fact, with a knowing that feels more like remembering 
that we aren't actually alone, that we are actually already here in a relationship of deepest love in this room. At this communion rail, we recognize once again how deeply connected we are one to the other. We're not some, you know, random collection of individuals sitting in our seats drinking grape juice out of shot glasses. No. We are, all of us, in the ancient words that describe this church, we are the bride of Christ, drinking in his substance, consciously becoming what, in fact, we have always been. Here, this morning, in this bridal chamber, we are cherished, we are tenderly held, we are deeply known, we are perfectly loved. Amen.